This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 194. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. We are just over two months away from the SNN Network Canada virtual event, our next virtual event on the schedule here uh, coming from SNN Network. Uh, That event is taking place December 7 through 9, 2021. Again, due to popular demand, Paul Andriola from Small Cap Discoveries and, and myself on behalf of SNN Network are teaming up to highlight our neighbors to the north, Canada. We already have an incredible list of companies that are signed up, which will be we will be sharing shortly. Be sure to register so that you can get all those announcements as they uh, as they are announced. <laughs> so, to register for the event, please go to our website Canada.SNN.network. Click the register button, and I look forward to seeing you all there. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with John Sukierwar. He's the founder of Sora Peak Capital Partners. I recently met John at one of our virtual events, and as a fellow millennial passion about small microcap stocks, I had to invite him on. John recently launched Sora Peak Capital this summer with an investment process that focuses on his own 21-point proprietary investment framework. His background and passion led to what sets him and Sora Peak apart, finding inefficiencies in small caps, looking globally with a long-term time horizon. I really enjoy featuring new emerging fund managers on the pod. And based on John's background, passion, and clear focus, he's one to watch for sure. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 194 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with John Sukiewar. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today, uh, my guest is, uh, you know, I'm, we just recently met, but uh, I feel like we're already kind of mishpucha in, like, in, in a roundabout way. You know, it's just kind of like that. Oh, 100%. Uh, it just, it's just kind of like that. So uh, jo- joining me right now is John Sukierwar. He is the founder of Sora Peak Capital. John, thank you so much for joining me today. And, and I'm sorry if I butchered your last name. I, I promise by the end, it will be perfected. That's all I'll be thinking about. I won't even think about the question I'm going to ask you. I'm just going to be thinking about that. No, you got it perfectly. And Bobby, I am thrilled to be on your podcast today. I'm a big fan and I've heard terrific interviews. I'm just very excited to, to be part of it. So thank you for having me here. Dude, it's great to have you. And thank you for that. I, I really do appreciate that. So 
you know, we were just talking offline. I, I mean, give, give me a little, I, I'd love to know where your passion for investing began and also, you know, where your, your last name, where its origins from too. I mean, uh, as you said, only one, uh, there's only been one person that's perfectly pronounced it uh, uh, <laughs> prior to, to today. Well, you had to teach me, but I was close. I was I'm like, sure. yeah, you were very close. Yeah, it's that C that trips people up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so tell me, where, where did your passion for investing begin? Yeah, sure thing, Bobby. So it, you know, I'll give a little bit of background about, you know, my my parents and how I, you know, got to learn about investing. So, you know, kind of starts back. I grew up in Westchester, New York. And, you know, my parents, uh, my dad, he he grew up in Brooklyn. And his parents actually you know, kind of going back to, you know, the, the last name and its origins, his parents are from Poland. And, you know, it's a very unique story, personal to me, obviously, it's a big part of my heritage. So, you know, they, uh, they were Jewish, and they, uh, you know, had, had, they gone through a lot, they are survivors of the Holocaust. And, you know, my, my, my dad, his, his parents, somehow, you know, they, they have their own stories that are, are just extraordinary and they managed to make their way. You know, they had, you know, their, their parents, their siblings all perished. And, um, you know, and, and I actually visited Poland for the first time a couple of years ago with my family. And it, it was a very, you know, insightful um, trip. And, you know, so anyway, my, my grandparents immigrated here and, you know, they uh, grew up in Brooklyn. My dad grew up with, with four of his siblings and, he, you know, he was the first of his siblings to graduate from college and the first of anyone in his family to graduate from college. He went to a city college and, you know, he's a jeweler. He, he opened up a, he operated a store in Brooklyn for many years. And so, um, you know, he really kind of had a, a tough deal in life and, and to kind of get to where he is and, uh, and, and make it out of, of Brighton Beach. And, you know, my mother too, uh, she is, and, and this is where my fund is, is named. Uh, she is from a place in Northeast India that like, nobody's ever heard of. You need to fly to an airport and go to another airport. And then you need to take like a trip on a, a bus up into the mountains. And, you know, like maybe now a million people, maybe a bit more live there, but, you know, for most of her life, it was in like the tens, maybe, you know, a couple hundred thousand tops. It was a very small community there and, and nobody ever kind of makes it out of there. And, and her and her mom, you know, when she was 18 years old, she um, came over here to, to New York as well. And she did one year of high school. Uh, you know, they they moved to the Bronx. They really had kind of nothing to their name. And you know, she she always had this dream of being a doctor, and she was committed to it. So she went to a city college here too. And you know, she uh, she persevered through thick and thin with you know with with little more than you know than than hope and and having her mom there. And and they both made it. So you know, I just mentioned all this because I really think it it kind of has um, influenced me and and made me who I am in many big ways. They gave me a ton of opportunity growing up in Westchester, New York, where you know, excellent school systems. And, you know, we, we were, you know, they, they definitely, they, they bought a house at a great time in the nineties and, you know, before real estate prices really rocketed up, um, you know, but it also kind of, you know, it, it gave me almost uh, a value investor mindset as a person, always kind of being able to, you know, being okay with not having like too many frills and, and, you know, kind of having a lean family operating structure. And, you know, and right now, like my, my business is a very like lean operating structure, right? You know, starting out small and kind of surviving, but but I've always kind of you know loved and and thrived on that as well. Um, so uh, you know, so 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 that that's kind of shaped me in a big way. Um, and um, by the way, you know, where my mom is from, there's there's a very beautiful forested mountain range called you know, called Sora. It's a small town over there, and it also holds the record for the most rainfall in 
anywhere in the earth. And so you, you go there and it's like always raining. And, you know, I tell people and, and you know, I tell people but for me, that means it's going to be raining great ideas, of course, you know, with, with the partnership. And so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, so anyway, um, you know, so, <clears throat> so, you know, fast forward to, to kind of high school, um, you know, I, I kind of, I always wanted to take after my mom and become a doctor. And, you know, then I, I took AP economics and senior year of high school and, you know, our teacher was totally awesome. Uh, Mr. Brown and, you know, still stay in touch with him. He's a great guy. And he really, it was the first time like I, you know, took a class and I thought, wow, like this, I feel, you know, this is really awesome stuff. And I really wish to learn more about this beyond the scope of this class. And so, you know, kind of when I was putting my, my majors down and, and when I got to school, um, I put down, uh, you know, either economics or if they had a business school of finance. And so, you know, kind of my choices were between uh, almost went to USC, almost went to Michigan, um, but I ended up going to Tulane in New Orleans. There's a lot of wonderful things about the city. Uh, most importantly, though, they, they did give me a very big uh, scholarship and that was very important to my parents. And so, uh, you know, ended up going there. And I always kind of thought like, no matter where I go, you know, if I, as long as I bet on myself and I do well, I'm going to find a way and, you know, I'm going to be okay. Right. And so, so I was majoring in finance, like in taking classes, getting good grades and, you know, but everyone's talking about investment banking and sales and trading and, uh, you know, pursuing these avenues. And I never really, you know, found a calling like, oh, well, I'm, I totally want to do this or that. So maybe the luckiest thing that ever happened to me was my, the summer after my sophomore year, I was 19 years old. And I met somebody, um, you know, to, out of respect for, for privacy for him, um, you know, I, I won't mention his name, but he, you know, he, uh, he's a professor at, a, at a, an MBA program. And he uh, gave me a list of books. And he said, hey, like, here is the syllabus that I give to my students. And, you know, for his, his executive MBA students and like, here are the books that I recommend, like I require them to read. And so he's, you know, said, Hey, well, if you're interested, you major in your finance, like maybe read these books, see if you like them. So, you know, the, the first one was, you know, the intelligent investor. The second one was the essays of Warren Buffett and then, you know, common stocks and uncommon profits. And, you know, there was, there was like four or five more. I, I ended up reading those first three kind of over the next few months. And, you know, I, for the first time, I, you know, I had that aha moment that, you know, I guess every investor with one of these stories has like, well, th this seems it makes all the sense in the world to me. If I can buy something, right, you know, at significantly below its perceived intrinsic value, you know, whether, you know, hunting where others aren't, which is kind of where I got influenced earlier to begin with, when, you know, in, in the theme of micro caps, um, or, you know, just really having a bearing perception, um, you know, then this makes all the sense in the world. And this is something, you know, I, I want to pursue. It seems, you know, very, very challenging. It seems intellectually stimulating. Um, so that's kind of where it began. Then there was there was one more really cool thing my you know my my junior year as well kind of right after that almost like in lockstep I took a class it's more of a program uh, called Burke and Road Reports at Tulane and uh, the whole class it's not like structured with lectures it's you, you get on a team and you're like equity research analysts for a company right you have to write like a full report and you know they really you know he, he required me to read the, the Peter Lynch book went up on Wall Street that was very influential um, he had us go like fly out to you know, company headquarters, every student had to. So we flew out to Atlanta, Georgia, where the Popeye's headquarters was. Our company was Popeye's, you know, the, the fast food chain. Um, and so, you know, meeting with like CEO and, and, and the president and the CFO, and this is, this is cool. This is, you know, this is awesome. And we're kind of asking questions and gaining insight. And, you know, we, we look back and kind of check up on some of the other, you know, research out there. And, and, you know, we're thinking, you know, obviously we're, we're not very skilled at the time, you know, just starting up, but, you know, like, 
yeah, maybe it seems that some of these data points we learn aren't really reflected, you know, kind of in, in the, uh, in, in the consensus thesis. And, you know, maybe this, this actually could be a good investment opportunity. And so we wrote a whole report on it and, you know, and so that was very influential as well. Um, so that's kind of where it all started, right? 19 years old. And, you know, I thought long-term, I, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be steps to get there, but, you know, kind of working, you know, with, with the end game in mind, right. My goal was, look, i these people inspire me. I really want to be an investor. And one day I want to run, you know, my own, my own fund, my own partnership. And, uh, you know, and the way to get there is you have to become a really good investor first or become a good enough investor. And to do that, you need to learn from really good investors. And then to learn from really good investors, like you need to go work for them. Right. And then like to go work for them, maybe you, you know, you have to get a job there. So I was kind of, you know, like already kind of pacing all these things out. This is like almost 10 years ago, but um, you know, so, so, you know, so, and, and, you know, Tulane was really wonderful. And, you know, there, there was another class senior year where, you know, you get to manage a portion of the, of the school's endowment called Darwin Fenner. And, you know, that was, you have to apply to the class. And that was a really terrific class. And we read all the research papers of, you know, like the, the classic research papers in academia, right? Like, you know, the, the, um, the LSV paper where they kind of discovered for the first time, um, docu- documented that, you know, price to book was a statistically significant indicator that, you know, that stocks are cheap. You know, the, the, the first papers that indicated that momentum strategy works, the first paper that indicated that, you know, um, like, you know, this strategy works and that strategy works. And we had to read through like, all of these. And, um, you know, that, that kind of taught me to also screen as well. Um, um, they're in a very bare bones basis, like with, with Excel and data, we had to do that for that class. Um, you know, other cool classes, we had, you know, cases in entrepreneurship by Professor Pulitzer, and, you know, he, he somehow pulled in all these CEOs, like I'm sitting there, he, he pulled in the CEO of Pool Corp to like speak to the class. But now it's like a $20 billion company, but it was a micro cap once. And it was, you know, it was, it was a really small company once. And like, this is awesome, you know, and all the students left and right, I think, you know, a lot of them are, you know, it's like a Wednesday night kind of, you know, tuning out, but I'm like, this is this is cool stuff. Anyway, so, you know, from there, kind of the next step was like getting a job, right? And, you know, wanting to get the most competitive job to, you know, to bolster your resume and, and then have the opportunity to take the next step to maybe go to the buy side for a good manager. So, you know, and, and from coming from Tulane, also another good, th- another good skill that it really helped me was, you know, unfortunately, you know, not like, you know, other schools, um, you know, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, et cetera, they're not banging down your door to go hire you, right? That's, you know, Harvard and that's Princeton, unbelievably smart. I have so many friends that went to these schools and they're unbelievably smart. And, you know, so for us, it was more, you know, you can definitely be good enough, but you have to, you know, you have to pave your way. You have to bang down their doors. You have to learn how to really network and get out there. So that kind of forced me. I used to be like quite introverted and, and definitely like, you know, not as comfortable talking to people. But, you know, I was kind of forced like, you know, over the summers and my spring breaks and like, you know, phone calls and emails, like just really learning how to navigate LinkedIn, like, you know, masterfully and, and, and reaching out to people. So eventually, you know, I, I landed an interview with Citigroup. In, in New York and got an interview and I got the job and, and I interned there. And then after that, you know, I got the full-time job. And so I was working, you know, in uh, banking for Citigroup. I was in their internal M&A group over there, which they handle the, um, the uh, mergers and acquisitions uh, for city for Citigroup on a proprietary basis. And they, they're, you know, where they want to acquire or, or dispose of uh, financial segments and other operating segments of the business. So it, it was, it was great exposure. I mean, look, you know, it's classic, like, you know, very, very long hours, but, but terrific exposure deals. You know, we had some cool deals like in South America, you know, I went to uh, Brazil a couple of times, 
um, during my time there and, and, you know, and, and learning, you know, working on Excel and, and PowerPoint and, and meeting all the deadlines, so, you know, and, and, and all that, but investing, it always, you know, captured my attention. Like it's, I never forgot about it. And I'm always just kind of thinking, okay, this is great, but you know, maybe it's not the best attitude to have, like it doesn't make you the best analyst for that group, but you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking ahead and I want to get to, you know, that next step. Right. So how do I do that? And, you know, in, in the meantime, I'm doing everything I can, you know, I, I pursue the, the CFA and, you know, I um, passed level one that year and then, you know, the, the next couple in the years after, and then, you know, I was writing articles on Seeking Alpha uh, at the time. Um, I actually had a really cool moment there. I found a microcap company, Cage 12 Have you heard of them? Oh, which one again? Cage who? K-12. K-12. Yeah, the, the ticker it, is LRN. It's it's kind of it's sounding kind of familiar, but but yeah, no, continue. Okay, no, anyway, so yeah, I found them and I thought they were they were particularly interesting. It was like the third write up I did, and it, it was one of these really cool moments when you're kind of really starting out. And I published a, a long pitch on on seeking alpha, and you know, and and so like uh, I think one or two couple months later, I received a notification on my phone, and and I think the headline was like K twelve, you know, source after record earnings. Here's who called it, and I clicked the link, and it's like. You know, and and then like the last bullet was like essay contributor Jonathan Sergerwar. You know, was was Sick. the only person on Wall Street with this call, and you know, it was like you know twenty two. But that that was a pretty cool you know moment for me. <laughs> so I, um, and and uh, so you know, I, I enjoyed writing up these these stocks, and you know, and, and and anyway, I was doing everything I can, and and so kind of at at some point, um, I I realized, and you know, with the help of some, I guess you know, like you can call it like a mentor and and other people who you know who I look up to for guidance, you know, kind of confirmed to me that, look, like you, you should try to work for somebody who has, you know, a really good track record, has a lot of knowledge to impart. And the way you do that is, you know, you have to keep learning on your own, you know, reading, you know, I was reading incessantly in whatever free time I had. And, um, you know, the, the, you know, Buffett, Greenblatt, you know, Lynch, Klarman, all of that good stuff. And, you know, thinking like, you know, and, and then eventually if you sit across the table from these people, like they need to see that you're committed, that you want this, that, you know, and, and, and that they, they should hire you, right? And so kind of, you know, it, this is like maybe like almost a year in, I sat down at my, at my desk at work and, you know, I, I one night it was like nine o'clock PM and, and it was pretty much done. And I went on Google and I, I Googled like list of, list of hedge funds or list of value funds in, in, in New York. And Octa Finance or one of those really, you know, kind of vague general websites, like they had this Excel sheet and it just had like, like two columns one column was a list of 9,000 funds, like a database in the United States. And the second column just gave the state they were in. And I thought, okay, well, I only have one screening criteria to work with. I'm going to stay in New York, I suppose. Right. So um, that narrowed it down to like about 900 or 1,000. And then I spent the next three weeks and, you know, whatever free time I had, I, I literally went one by one, you know, in those thousand, you know, funds, I, I caught control C, control V. Um, and then I, uh, you know, like make notes, like what kind of fund is it? You know, what I want to work for them and, and who are they? Uh, you know, is it a credit fund like Nick's? You know, is it, a, is it an FX fund like Nick's? You know, this and that. So I kind of like I whittled it down and, and I, I came to a list of like fewer than 10 managers. And, um, you know, and, and caveat, there were so many managers, I'm sure, who didn't make it to that list who would have been terrific to work for. So this is like, by all means, not like an all-inclusive list of like, these are the only people. But, you know, one of them was uh, Bob Robotti and Robotti and Company. And... I, you know, I looked at, I was looking at the website. He was very public, thankfully. So he had a lot of videos, a lot of like content. And I read literally everything out there on him. There were like at least 20, 30 pieces of content between articles and videos. And I felt like 
I, I really want to work for this guy. He has a terrific track record, you know, and I'm, I'm, it's, I'm sure it's, you know, it's out there and I was able to find it back then, like really good track record and uh, kind of, you know, an, an authority in the, in the, you know, classic value investing industry. And so I sent him a cold email and I sent a, a few other funds cold emails, um, you know, met with them um, and yeah, Bob and one other fund uh, they, they gave me offers. And then, you know, then I, I accepted, I accepted with Bob and, you know, the, the only, the only caveat kind of being, I agreed. It was my idea. You know, I, I told him, look, I'll work for free. And the offer was kind of like, yeah, you'll, you'll, we'll hire you, but you'll work for free. Right. And like legally as close to legally possible as working for free can be. And so, you know, look, like how many people in my shoes would, would do that? Um, you know, leaving like a, a, a great job out of college, you know, working at city and, you know, we're a bulge bracket firm and, and, and with all the other exit opportunities that you could possibly get, like, you know, go, go work for almost not like, you know, again, it was my idea and I was happy to do it. Right. It, it seemed like a terrific opportunity, you know, to learn from Bob and to really pursue this long-term dream. So, you know, and, and it didn't come without its, its, um, its sacrifices. I had to go move home with my parents for a year. Like I couldn't afford to live in the city. I didn't, I don't have like a trust fund or, or rich parents to fall back on. And so, uh, you know, so, so, but believe me, that was the best decision like I've ever made career-wise, 100%. Um, going over there, you know, learning Bob is a terrific record. And, you know, there, there's other fund managers who operate in that ecosystem and, you know, out of respect for their privacy too. But, uh, you know, they have some of the best records, you know, nobody's ever heard of, you know, so to speak. And, you know, they're having in micro caps, small caps as well. And, you know, just an overall an unbelievable environment, terrific learning experience. I was in a pretty unique role being, uh, I was in their broker dealer arm, right? Where like, you know, it was a very kind of like open company where like I would still get, you know, tons of exposure to meetings, you know, with Bob himself and, and, uh, you know, projects with him and, and with, you know, other people, you know, collaborate with everybody on, you know, on, on the asset management side. And then on the broker dealer side, like I um, was, you know, able to, you know, do tons of meetings, phone calls, meetings, like, you know, in New York, all over the country, we did a lot of trips, like with other fund managers. So I did get a lot of exposure to like many different styles of investing and many different fund managers. So, you know, kind of two years of like drinking from a fire hose, it was terrific. I guess, you know, at the same time, I was still, you know, I was still reading Buffett and I was still very interested as well, learning more about, you know, at Robotti and Company, they, they're very good at, and they have a terrific record on looking at statistically cheap companies of traditional value, right? And, you know, I was learning that at the same time, I also was interested in learning in higher quality companies, you know, that aren't trading at low valuation multiples today per se, but like long-term, you know, um, you're taking the long-term outlook on them and they can truly be these durable, you know, compounders that you can invest in for many years. So, you know, another, another great thing, I, I reached out to um, that you know, same professor um, who, who introduced me to investing and I asked if I could audit his course at business school. He said, yes. So, you know, here I was like Friday nights, Saturday mornings, I was, you know, commuting to Columbia and, and I was like taking classes, um, you know, 23 years old. And um, it, that was, you know, a career changing experience as well. And, and I think that really was very influential on me as well, too. Um, so incredibly kind of him. And uh, yeah, so kind of the next step after that, I, you know, after two years of Rabati, I did decide that I wanted to, you know, kind of pursue maybe learning from a manager who was more, you know, aligned with, you know, ha has a great record again, you know, looking at these high quality, durable, long-term outlook businesses. And so, um, you know, I, I did a company trip and they mentioned some investor that they really respect and I Googled him, I've had an interview and anyway, I, I ended up, um, you know, emailing this guy named John Kabaz at Phoenician Capital and he, 
you know, he invited me in to speak, you know, did a case study um, and he, he offered me to, for me to work there and, you know, and, and it was a terrific opportunity. Um, so, so I worked there and that's where I spent, you know, the last three years working on um, before here and, you know, um, great people. I had a great, you know, learned so much working there as well. You know, it, it was a much smaller team, right? It was an investment team of including myself, three people. And so, you know, you really have to be exposed to the entire, um, you know, the entire pro- investment process, like everything from like the beginnings of primary research all the way to like investment decisions. And, um, you know, and, and like he, he has a terrific record too. Um, you know, there, there's some articles out there on Google, you know, publicly available, like, you know, 2016, 17, you know, the return between 30 and 40%. Last year, you know, they returned 51%. You know, I was there, um, you know, net of, net of fees and, you know, he, he's built something terrific over there. And yeah, that, that was probably, you know, my biggest stride of like learning as far as like being an investor and enough to give me the confidence that, you know, I think I'm, I'm ready enough to, you know, to do this and, you know, where I am today. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of, um, that's kind of how I got here, you know, pursuing this longstanding dream has been, you know, coming to fruition at the same time. I, you know, I really am obviously confident that I have a process in place and, you know, I've identified a strategy that, you know, can do well, you know, for myself and obviously for my LPs too. So, you know, here I am and I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's really thrilling. John Sukiewar, ladies and gentlemen, you know, that, that, that I, there's so many different rabbit holes I want to go down, you know, with everything that you just said. <laughs> Um, but maybe we'll come back to them a little bit later because I mean, you set me up for a perfect segue into your investment process. So, you know, um, you sent me over your, the, the, the investment pitch deck and, uh, in there you document how, uh, you have this 21 point investment framework. So can you tell me a little bit about that and the investment process that you now employ after all the experience that you've gone to, to get you to this point where, where you're now launching Soar Peak? Yeah, 100% Bobby. So, you know, the 21 kind of point investment framework, something I definitely, you know, it's, uh, you know, Phil Fisher has like his 15 points and, you know, um, and other other very smart investors that I look up to, you know, they have, you know, their 16 points, their, you know, 20 points. So it's not a new so, concept. It's so we have, so we have to, so it's like, you have to be above 10 to make it like a real point system. Is that like, is that like the thing? No, it's like, you know, like, like as we above LeBron 12. is number 23. So Kobe has to be number 24, right? Right. Um, number. So I, I had to add an extra point or two. To- <laughs> fair, fair enough. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and it really is, you know, it really is kind of uh, what it is, is just what I found over my experience, right? Um, of what's important to me. Like, you know, Phil Fisher has his 15 points. Obviously, like, I don't have too much in common with those 15 points, right? I, I call it points, but it's 21 broad areas where I, you know, every, everybody's different. Like, like, you know, the other, the other week I was reminded of a Bruce Lee quote, you know, where he says, you know, study the greats, study the masters, um, sift through what you don't find important, keep what you find valuable. And the end result is something that's uniquely your own. Right. So there's 21 points or what are uniquely my own. And, and yes, like it's not a checklist, but more a framework for whenever I view an investment, you know, I, I want to make sure that, you know, I understand the questions, um, and the answers to, you know, all these things that, that are important to, to just about every investment out there. Um, so that's what it is. So I think, you know, kind of can segment into two camps from here, right? There's a, the investment process, and that's kind of what that, that framework, you know, attacks. And then there's, you know, the, you know, kind of the strategy or the approach, right? The approach, you know, that I apply like this process to. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, in the interest of microcaps, I think let's start actually with the approach first, because I think, you know, that that's, that's what will resonate um, probably with you and, and with most, 
is, you know, so, so kind of like I, I bucketed it into three core areas where I think my approach is, is very different than the average, you know, fund manager out there. And then for most people and taken as a whole, um, I think it is pretty unique in and of itself. Like not many, not many managers or, or approaches I've seen that really combine all three elements. You know, the first is, you know, looking at small and micro cap companies because they are structurally inefficient. You know this better than anybody. You're you are the king of the microcap space, Bobby. So you know I, I don't need to explain. I'm a, to I'm, you. I'm a jester of the microcap space. Come <laughs> on, now. let's let's be real. No. <laughs> so, well, I don't know what that makes me. Oh my gosh. Um, so you know, so just like a few facts that you know people are familiar, like you know, like like the average the average large cap company out there um, has you know 26.1 sell side analysts covering them. Who you know, people for a living, they have to you know, they have to look at these companies and, and they have to you know try to sift through everything and write an eighty-page initiation report, you know, and everything important. And then you also have you know thousands and thousands of other analysts, you know, on the buy side looking at it too. Um, you know, versus small microcap companies, you know, we know plenty that have zero coverage. Maybe one analyst, you know, one kind of third or fourth-rate shop that covers them. Basically, nothing. And you know, as you know, and. So just the odds and the probability of, of there being information out there that is not yet uncovered and that does matter to the stock price and that would make it more efficient, like the, the, the probabilities are heavily in your favor versus looking at this large cap company, right? And then also, you know, and so why does the inefficiency exist is also because these large fund managers in the United States and globally, they can't invest in these companies for structural reasons, right? Like I was looking at numbers the other day, the, the, of the top 500 asset managers in the United States, the average, and this is back in 2017, so the numbers are higher now. The average manages $44 billion and they have 47% exposure to equity. So that's the end result is like $20 billion that they're allocated to equities, right? And so, you know, they can't afford to invest. They, they just structurally can invest in a micro cap company, right? If you take, um, you know, a company that has a $500 million market cap and, you know, and you look at their liquidity, you know, maybe the ADV, you know, maybe what, like $100,000 or, you know, to, to, to maybe even up to a million dollars. And, you know, for this, for any of these large funds to take any meaningful position size and within any meaningful liquidity, you know, days of liquidity threshold that they have, they can't do it. And so, and also, you know, there's, since there's no sell side coverage, a lot of these big funds and hedge funds, they do rely on sell side coverage and research and, uh, you know, and and in the age of data, you know, with, with, uh, you know, you, you have your you know, all, all this money that you're spending on third-party outlets to, to kind of try to get an edge or, and, you know, this and that, that doesn't really exist for a lot of these companies either. So they stay away. And so, you know, the end result, of course, is you can have these companies that are inefficient and statistically speaking, historically, like you look at the numbers, I, I put it in my first letter, um, microcaps and small caps do outperform like the larger cap companies. And then eventually the tailwind, right, is that some of these companies that are growing, the micro caps that are growing and, you know, for the right reasons and, and with, you know, with, with uh, surplus return on investment capital, like they do end up eventually becoming big enough to attract the liquidity and the attention of, you know, the larger funds. And then, you know, then the thing becomes more efficiently priced and, you know, maybe you get multiple expansion. Um, not that that's the goal here, you know, it's, it's always fundamentally price and value, but, um, you know, it, 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 it can help, you know, discovery of, of value. So that's kind of the first bucket we all know very well. Second bucket is looking globally, right? And, you know, I think this is, this is something that isn't too common. You know, most of, you know, the statistics show most of the institutional money in the United States is, is invested within the United States borders. And from retail investors, it's, it's even higher, something like 90% of retail investors keep within, within, the, within the borders. And, 
you know, people are familiar with the United States and people kind of get maybe a little bit scared or wary of, of international countries. But look, you know, when this kind of started for me, not out of any desire to be different or do something unusual, it was just, I was tasked to screen for companies from scratch with a global mandate. And, you know, I was finding that there's a lot of these companies with very high quality characteristics, right? Like such as those that trade in the US and just about every exchange in, in every country without fail that you look at has at least some of these companies, if not many companies, like an average mix of companies that are very high quality, you know, uh, very high returns on capital. Uh, you, you do some research and you find there is some definable moat that exists in the business. Um, and, you know, all else equal, you know, fundamental characteristics equal, they're trading at, you know, significantly lower multiples, right? Like the average company, the same company in the US that's trading at say, you know, 40 times trailing earnings or trailing free cash flow in another country, like let's say Poland or Australia might be trading at 25 times earnings or free cash flow, right? Um, and so, you know, so I found this and, and I kind of, you know, I had to see it and believe it. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, and then I said, wow, well, you know, I, I really think to some extent, there is like also market inefficiency here. You know, people are not, you know, branching out to other parts of the world as much. You know, the small and micro caps are even less discovered in those parts of the world, holding everything, uh, everything constant. So here's yet another bucket of inefficiency where you, know, you can look um, and, you know, as an added layer, you know, does it add some protection against, you know, uh, you know, sell off happening in the United States as well? Like, sure. Um, so, you know, like when you look at the, the cyclically adjusted PE ratios for all the countries across the globe, the U.S. is about 39 times right now. And that's that's the highest in the, in the entire world of any of any market, you know. And then along the spectrum, you have most are in the 20s and like some of the teens. Right. And so, um, you know, it you, you just get cheaper valuations for, you know, and again, like not every company is going to be great. You have to find the good ones and distinguish between, you know, the, the winners and the losers. Right. Um, so that's kind of the second you know element. Um, you know, taking a global investment universe with, by the way, in developed markets, right? Just about, I'm all, almost exclusively looking at developed markets, right? You know, you have, you know, higher capital markets integrity, you know, you have, you know, you have confidence in regulations, you have, um, you, you have all sorts of structural things that exist just like the United States. And you, uh, you know, there's, there's no risk of like, you know, civil war happening. You know, there's no risk of, of like runaway rampant inflation happening. Um, there, there's no, there's no huge geopolitical risk. So, you know, for the most part, they're safe. And, you know, and kind of like, you know, like one other, like, you know, for example, talking about like, you know, pushbacks that people give, you know, you know, one of them is, you know, for example, um, well, how do you know, how do you know these companies in these markets, like, as well as the local investors in a country, right? Uh, like if, if you're going to be investing in Canada, maybe people in Canada know, know it better or, you know, a European country. Like if you're going to be investing in Germany, how do you know, like as well as the German investors? Well, you know, my, my answer is kind of framework. I think framework really trumps any, you know, like local knowledge that people have. Like to give an example, um, you know, Warren Buffett talked about, you know, back in the early 2000s, he had a handbook of, of Korean public companies, right? Somebody gave it to him, I think from City, and... He, he, he flipped through it. There was like hundreds of pages, hundreds of companies. And at the time, there was you know, a very poor macroeconomic outlook in Korea. Stocks had gotten crushed. The market was down a lot. And like he went through all these companies and he found a handful, like, like these you know, blue chip, really high quality companies that are trading in like two to three times earnings. Like some of them were trading, according to him, you know, really low multiples. And he thought like, well, you know, I'm going to buy a basket of these. And, you know, and my framework tells me that, you know, these are, you know, durable companies that are going to survive for the very long term and they're temporarily cheap because of you know because of reasons that matter to the short term but probably are not going to hold in the long term i'm going to buy these and he bought it he made a killing and you know and 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 the lesson being like well 
did, does Warren Buffett understand Korean culture better than, you know, all the fund managers in Korea and the people that, no, hell heck no. Like he's, he's Mr. McDonald's and Mr. Coca-Cola, like, you know, no way. And, but did he have a framework that was very different than 99% of the investors there that allowed him to take advantage of the situation? Absolutely. Right. So like, similarly, if I'm looking at companies in, in across the world and, you know, I, like, do I understand? And, you know, it is probably the biggest risk, by the way, of like, you know, not understanding if you're going to buy like a consumer product or like something that could like be like a fad versus like a consumer staple, you know, yes, like it does help to be local. It definitely does help to be local. But, you know, as for, for most of the investment process, like, you know, as far as like an understanding, you know, just having a framework of looking at companies um, and, you know, understanding, you know, what is the market opportunity here, you know, like understanding uh, management, their story, how they came to be and, and their focus on the company and understanding what the company's, you know, moat is within within its own country. And if that's something I can understand as well as anybody, then then most of the rest doesn't matter. Right. So, you know, I think kind of, you know, like a, it's, you know, like a busted myth. Um, it's, it's something I firmly believe in that way, um, you know, and kind of so. Um, you know, I, I wanted to actually quickly follow up on that because yeah. and look, we'll get back to the 21 points in a second because I have another yeah. question on that. But, you know, when you're talking about the, the global bucket, you know, I mean, I, this is like the classic question that every uh, interviewer would probably ask you, like, what looks interesting right now? I mean, what, com- what, what countries have been um, kind of standing out in some of your fundamental research? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, w- without without giving away, giving away my whole book, like, you know, a few, a few, few countries, you know, right. Like Canada is, is so I say countries. That's so why I say countries, not co- Okay. All right. Continue. <laughs> uh, you know, like for example, like countries, you know, like Canada is a great place to look. Um, you know, I, I did talk about in, um, you know, do your own due diligence and this is not investment advice. Like I talked about in a recent podcast, um, you know, go easy and they're listening in Canada and, you know, if it, all else equal, if it were trading in the United States, it probably would be at a higher multiple. Um, you know, like, like Eastern Europe, um, you know, Poland, I've, you know, I've, I've definitely, you know, have my eye on a couple of companies there. Um, you know, Australia, you know, have my eye on a couple of companies there. Like, for example, like one, you know, I'll, I'll give like a, like a vague description, like in Australia, um, uh, a company I'm, I'm probably, you know, I might be writing about soon in my next letter, um, you know, I've, I've found and, you know, and, and it's, <clears throat> it is, um, you know, micro cap company. And, you know, they have, they have a founder who founded the company back in 2005. And, you know, he, he still owns 56% of the business. He's on the board and he built this thing organically from like a tiny, tiny from scratch private company in um, 2005. And just about, you know, they're in a cyclical industry, but they have a niche in the industry that, that prevents it from being exposed to cyclical forces. And I think it's slightly misunderstood for that reason, but he's built this company organically, right? From, you know, $0 in revenue to now they're doing, you know, some in the order of 300, $400 million of, of, of revenue. And, you know, they, they are dominating a niche, a clear niche over there where they are 10 times the size of their biggest competitor. So they don't really have any competition and, and their biggest competitor isn't really attempting to grow. They built something very special with their culture. Um, you know, their, their value proposition to the clients makes complete sense. And, you know, their, their clients love them. And they continue, you know, every year to just, you know, expanding, expanding their business, expanding their business. And now this year they're expanding internationally. They're having a lot of early success in the new geographies that they're expanding to. And, you know, they can, they can increase the size of their business long-term or they can increase their profits by, you know, by my estimate, like seven times what they are today. And, you know, they, it's, it's just been, you know, their track record of growing this business in the right way and, and expanding margins has just been, you know, like, like a rocket ship. Like, I think, you know, their, their Kager over the last five years has probably been, you know, I think like 40 to 60%, something in that neighborhood. And, and, it, and, you know, COVID slowed it down a bit, but it also provided arguably a buying opportunity. Um, so, 
anyway, um, you know, it's, it's done well. And, you know, but again, it was just an example of like something that, you know, I, I found organically and they were trading at a very depressed multiple, I think nine times, you know, trailing um, earnings, free cash flow. you know, they're, they're, it seems it's a high chance that they're going to continue growing at, at high, at double digit high clips of revenue and profits. Um, you know, they, they have all these terrific high quality characteristics that I look for in a business and, um, you know, management is, is skin of the game. There's been tons of insider buying recently and they just, because they're so small and they're so illiquid, they, they have no coverage. They, they're covered by one sell side, you know, firm that like, you've never heard of. And so, I mean, why, why do you think so? I mean, you know, we were talking about this offline, how, you know, microcaps, there's been just, just a, a, so much interest, you know, since 2020. Um, uh, it, like, why, why do you think that global opportunities are still getting overlooked? Is it because the new interest is like, look, we need to just wrap our hands around what's going on in the U.S. first before. <laughs> now you're telling me Canada, Australia, Israel, right. whatever. Like, uh, we're just trying to, like, is that really, in your opinion, is, is that what you think is happening? I mean, I, I think on average, right? I mean, you know, retail investors for sure have like home bias. Everybody has a home bias. There's studies that statistically show you have a home bias for your own country. As far as these, I mean, like how hard is it? How often do like U.S. microcaps get like really found? I mean, you know better than anybody because you, you you know you you look at them for a living, and I'm sure so you you still find excellent U.S. microcap companies that are like undiscovered or hidden gems, and you know like the expels of the world that have you know become more publicized and have been like hundred baggers and they eventually work out. Once upon a time, it started as like a $10, 20000000 million company that nobody ever heard of, right? That, not just the US base, but US base with a Canadian listing. Yeah. There, like, there uh, we go. <laughs> you know, full disclosure, I'm not a shareholder. John, are we shareholder in Expo? No, no, okay. sir. All right. All right. So no, you're right. You know, um, is it, <laughs> there is a home bias and it's sorry. It's actually kind of funny when you brought up Canada. Just a little plug. We're actually that's our next virtual event that we're hosting in December. On uh, with I've seen that. Yes, with Small Cap Discoveries as our lead sponsor. But besides the point, I do want to go back though to twenty one point uh, yeah. uh, investment framework. I mean, without going through all twenty one of the points, and you know that's right. your proprietary stuff, right? You want to wait till somebody's you know considering to be an LP, but give a flavor. You know what are what's What's a couple things uh, as part of that framework that you say really differentiates you maybe from some other funds that are in a similar AUM? Absolutely. So, you know, as kind of, as an investor, I really look up to um, Girish Baku of 10 core partners, you know, as he puts it, you know, this is long-term high conviction investing, right? And then, you know, except he's, he's investing in large and mega cap companies. He's unbelievably brilliant and, and it's, it's a much tougher game, but I'm taking that to like small micro cap companies, right? And so I can bucket it in four, from 21 points. I can bucket it in four areas of the process that, you know, um, definitely, you know, happy to talk about. And so, you know, and it really, you know, the premise of all this is long-term investing, right? Which is another, you know, differentiator, but, you know, if, if, you know, you're, you're, Trying, for example, if you were trying to, if I were trying to invest, you know, my assets in companies with like a, a next quarter time horizon, does it matter all that much or nearly as much what the quality of the business is? Like, probably not, right? You're looking at an earnings beat um, and, you know, or a special situation at hand, right? Um, you know, trying to understand something going on, you know, in the business that, uh, you know, that, that that's misunderstood, you know, by um, and, and that's not the consensus view. But if you're really looking long term, right, you know, that's that's another source of arbitrage here. In addition to, you know, small caps and global you're looking at long term as a source of arbitrage. The average uh, holding period is now five and a half months 
for New York Stock Exchange stocks, um, according to a report that came out this past summer. So look, you know, the process is, you know, I'm, I'm really looking at, you know, obviously you have to screen for your companies and, you know, I guess starting here, like, you know, in, in the beginning, screening the companies, um, you know, I'm, I really enjoy this part of the process. I, you know, I'm, I have my 14,000 companies, which, you know, be, having a global universe expands my universe by about a factor of 5x. If you're US only, it's about 2,800 companies within most reasonable parameters, you know, between micro to mid cap. Um, so, you know, 14,000 and, you know, I have maybe call it 20 different like metrics or data points, like on an Excel spreadsheet um, that I lay out, right? Like I pull in this data from, you know, a provider, call it capital IQ and, you know, and, and I have that all in front of me. And, you know, I guess a lot of people too, when they screen for companies, you know, uh, some people, they, they use the providers directly or, you know, they kind of, you know, they take an A to Z approach, which if you do look at every company, that's the best thing you could possibly do. Um, can you give it the proper time and attention? You know, that's going to require a lot of resources. And for me, like, you know, I, I have my, my metrics and, you know, I don't have to just sort it by one. I can do a combination of, you know, meets a minimum threshold here, minimum threshold here. Um, it is, you know, it, it, it's ranked, you know, accordingly here for this metric. And so kind of, you know, take a, a combined approach and, you know, look at, you know, maybe 1000 out of the 14,000 that most interests me, you know, almost, you know, the rest are almost eliminated or, or not prioritized, I should say, um, because of, you know, they don't meet certain criteria. And so, you know, once I get there, right, the, the beginning of the process is kind of, you know, you, you do your basic primary research, right? You know, you, you do enough research to think, are you interested? Um, you know, and obviously, you know, reading through, you know, their, their latest annual report or 10K, you know, um, reading through their investor presentation, you know, Googling, you know, looking up articles, kind of trying to learn more about the space they're in if you're not very familiar. You know, most times they're, you know, you're, you're not totally familiar with, with, with the space. And so, um, you know, then conducting, you know, phone calls with, with the company and, you know, looking, you know, looking at third party, you know, any third party, um, you know, documents that exist like uh like expert network calls like transcripts there's a lot of good resources now tegas you know third bridge um and you know you've, you have friends who you know who have the, you know the transcripts and and um and things like that and so you know you, you you know primary research is certainly part of it really what i'm trying to figure out though right is if i'm taking a long-term approach the cry you know most of this framework is to determine is this company you know is this company trading for a price today that's significantly below its its intrinsic value, and intrinsic value judged by you know its long-term future-free cash flows. So everything comes down to that, and everything in the framework you're trying to you know to solve for value, solve for V. And so you know when when you're looking at the next couple of years, right? You know you you, uh, you know the consensus is usually not that far off, and you know and, and that's where Wall Street looks one year ahead. You know a lot of sell side, I don't even look two years ahead, maybe, but once you go beyond, you know, three to five to, to even like seven years, it's very hard to, to determine what a company in an industry is going to look like in seven years, you know, but, but that's where the money is made. That's where the big decisions are made. And so, you know, what I'm really looking for, you know, falls under kind of, you know, two categories, right? Business quality and the management quality. So, you know, really looking at, uh, at, you know, so, you know, we're talking about business quality, right? Like if you're, you know, if you're looking at a company and you're trying to figure out in three to five years, like what are they going to earn? What are their profits going to be? They probably, if, if, if those profits are going to be, you know, growing if those, and those profits are going to be, you know, compounding uh, over time, you know, the company company probably is, is going to need to have, be doing something special in their space, unless the, the space is growing, you know, the, the TAM is growing by, by an exorbitant amount, but then again, you know, if a company is in, in, a, in a fast growing space, but they're doing nothing different, they're not going to earn any, any excess profits, of course. So, you know, something special they're doing, a competitive advantage, you know, very widely used word, of course, but, you know, competitive advantage that, that, that exists in the company. Um, you know, oftentimes if, you know, 
if the company's profitable already and you look at the return on invested capital, right? Like, you know, and, and if they're earning, you know, something like far in excess of, of their, of their cost of capital, like you, you, you probably, they probably are doing something very special. If, if for like the past five years, the return on invested capital is like 20 to 30%, you know, statistically, they're probably doing something special and you need to find out what that is. And then, you know, it, of course, that's just a starting point, but like, you know, that's, you know, what that is, or, you know, oftentimes they're not profitable yet, like some other companies, but they are doing something special. And one day, eventually, like they, they will be earning a very high ROIC. So, um, you know, so if, you know, so a lot of the framework is, is questions, you know, kind of surrounding, you know, like, like what are the unit economics of the business, right? Like, like exactly like, you know, if, if they have a, a standardized product or service or, or a few, like, you know, what exactly, you know, breaking it down in very granular detail, right? Like, you know, what, what are, what is the product, you know, what is this? And, and, you know, what are your customer acquisition costs? What are the lifetime value of, of this product? And, you know, how quickly are you going to grow this? Like, why are they going to be this? Why are they going to be sustainable? You know, looking, looking at their, their operating expenses and, you know, figuring out, you know, asking like, you know, exactly what is this, what is it going to be? And, and trying to dissect everything, understanding the business very, you know, very, very granularly, um, you know, and, and looking at, you know, traditional things, barriers to entry, barriers to success, um, you know, are, is the business really doing something, you know, truly special or, you know, is, is this more of a commodity item that a new entrant can come in and, and, and compete away um, and, you know, Track record comes in a, in a play here in, in a big way sometimes. Uh, you know, if a company's been doing you no know, compounding pre-tax earnings per share, you know, for like you know at high rates for the past ten to fifteen years, that can really help. Um, you know, kind of give you a sense. So you know, business quality is very important, and uh, discretion with service here, obviously, things come into mind. But you know, you know, mar- like market win share, like how how like how what percent of, of the new customers in the new market coming online are are they winning? Um, things of that nature, right? Then you know you have you know, you have management quality, I think is the other kind of big bucket here, right? And so management quality, you know, a lot of people, they, they prefer not to, you know, not, not to kind of put too much weight on management or it's very difficult. I've come to think, you know, and I, I don't know, the more experience I get, I, I only think it's more and more important. You know, any competitive advantages in the business, any way that the business is kind of designed, right? Um, it's every day the CEO is making a decision that either is making the company better or, or making the company worse. They're either building economic value or destroying it. And, you know, the CEO and the manager, the managers around him, you know, who buy into the culture and, and the vision and then everybody at the company. Right. And, and, and what they're trying to build towards and around. And so, you know, I, I guess if to bucket it kind of in, you know, in, in four in four groups, you know, looking at the managers and looking at their skill, which the best thing, in my opinion, the best thing you can see for the best proxy for skill is track record. Right of, of the company, like if, if you're looking at a company where you know, the brand new or the CEO is new and they don't really have a record at a similar company or the current company, um, you know, or, or even sometimes it could be difficult. Like if it's a it's a replacement, somebody who's worked up the ranks. Uh, if the company has a great culture, then you know it, it could be you know it could be easier to think, okay, well the CEO is going to pick up where the old one left off. But if there's you know a CEO who's been there and um, you know they uh, you know they they've been compounding earnings per share or free cash flow per share for like 15 years, right? You probably have a good sense that you know they 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 know what they're doing. They are probably going to continue executing here. You know, if everything else is in place, right? You know, industries can change very quickly. But um, you know, like compared to a new CEO, this you know this CEO is probably you know going to continue doing what it is they're doing, and, and it'll help you give some confidence. Um, you know, skin in the game is very important. You know, and and if they don't have skin in the game, if they're a newer CEO and um, you know, and, and maybe they have an incentive plan where they're aligned with shareholders 
was very important, right? Because you can have a business where they're optimizing for the business. It's a terrific business, but the link from business value to shareholder value is not that great, right? You know, they, you know, if, 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 the, C, if the CEO doesn't own any stock, you know, and, and the CEO is, is not a founder or not an early employee of the business, then, you know, maybe, it, you know, how do you know, how do you know that when, as the company grows, you know, they're, they're going to be incentivized to maximize per share value rather than something else in the business, right? A lot of them are maybe corporate CEOs. Maybe they're ambitious for themselves. Maybe this is just like a three, four year job on the resume before they go do something else. Or, you know, maybe they're interested in cutting some other deal or, or maybe they're interested in, in, you know, I don't know, one, one of those things, you know, maximizing for whatever their bonus is. If the bonus is not aligned with shareholder value, maybe it's reaching improving operating margins or, you know, just revenue growth, stuff that isn't necessarily correlated with, with shareholder growth. Right. You know, um, you know, ambition and vision is very important too. like, you know, the, you know, if, if you have a CEO, it, it makes a world of difference, right. Between somebody who, you know, is when you ask them, like, where do you want to be in five or 10 years? And what are your priorities to getting there? They don't necessarily, you know, have a compelling reason like, oh, well, we're, you know, in the next few years, we want to continue doing this. And then, you know, we're looking to innovate new products and then we're doing everything we can to grow the top line. And then, you know, and they don't really, it's kind of clear. They don't really like think like very long-term that, but you know, if you talk to somebody and, and they just look at you and, and they tell you, well, you know, it's been the same thing. We want to be the best in the world. We want to be the number one in what we do. And here's why. And they lay out a crystal clear vision of their priorities. And you can tell that they, they think about this a ton. Um, and they can articulate it well, like that makes a world of difference because, you know, if you want to invest for the long term, you know, you need the right CEO, but you also need them to be there and, and to be on the same team as you. You need them working for you as hard as possible, you know, while, while you sleep at night. Right. Um, so, you know, those are some things that are important, for instance. And, you know, I, I think a note in integrity um, is important too. you know, obviously. And, and integrity is interesting. Right. Because everybody like. For example, when I was taking the CFA, like, you know, levels like one and two, there's the ethics portion. I think all three, there's the ethics portion. And, you know, a lot of people like kind of fail the ethics portion or they don't do well and it, and it hurts their score because they're like, oh, well, I'm an ethical guy or I'm an ethical girl. Like, oh, I'm, I'm going to nail this. I know what's bad. I know what you shouldn't be doing. Right. But I think the same thing goes with like integrity. Like you think, oh, well, like obviously if the companies are like, if it's a fraud or if the CEO went to jail or he's a felon, like I'm just going to stay away. But like integrity is, I think it's a lot more subtle than that in the ways that it matters and the ways that you can actually see warning signs before investing, right? Like I'll give you an example, like, you know, like one, like, you know, not naming a specific company, but you know, there, there was one CEO of, of a company, you know, that, that kind of really uh, collapsed a couple of years ago that, that I knew quite well. And he, you know, he'd run two successful companies before that. And, uh, you know, including that one and they had good runs and, and they had good track records. Um, but, you know, he did, he did have a history of, you know, he did have a history of doing some things that were, um, you know, maybe not necessarily, you know, kosher, but, but we're, we're okay. There was good reasons behind it. And so, you know, nobody really, you know, faulted him, but, um, you know, kind of when, when the whole company collapsed, the reason, you know, one of the chief reasons behind it was because, he was being dishonest, I would say, about how the company was growing its, its capital base, we'll call it, right? And, you know, he, he was communicating for years and years where, you know, it's growing at this percent for, for this reason from these, from these constituents. But at the end of the day, it was growing that fast, partially for the reason he was saying, but partially for another very, very risky reason that ended up blowing up. And so, and then I remember seeing him like while this was going on and it kind of like discovered all this, like I went to a, another, 
you know, investor presentation that he was giving, like some the company still like had at least another like half of a leg down to go. But like, you know, he uh, he was commuting, he was giving his, his PowerPoint pitch for the same company. And he was, again, just saying, oh, we're growing this fast because of like these core reasons. And he wasn't telling the other side of the story. And I kind of think of that as like, uh, you know, like it's like a subtle breach of integrity, right? He's not lying to your face, but like he's not telling the whole truth at the same time. Um, you know, and other companies, you know, examples like, you know, if, 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 if they put out like a, a target EBITDA margin, right, of like, say, like 15%. And then you like you get on the phone with them and, and, and then, oh, well, you know, how exactly are you going to get to 15 percent? And they can't really get you get you there. Um, and, you know, and then they kind of mention, oh, well, so and that's they'll give you some reasons that it's not an exact path to get there. That it's not clear that they know how they're going to get there. They say, and that's why we think we're going to get to 10 percent. You say, well, well, hold on a minute. You know, you think like, well, you didn't give a clear reason. And, you know, and, and what, what is the real number here? You know, little things like that, uh, at least to me, you know, I, I kind of view them as subtle breaches of integrity. And, uh, you know, and maybe, you know, it's obvious the incentives that exist for them. Like they want to put out, you know, or if they suddenly expand their TAM, like, you know, they, they either want to, uh, you know, they, they want people to think they have high TAMs and higher margins and higher forecasts so that, you know, they're, they're going to raise the stock price, right? That's, the, that's, that's always the reason. So um, anyway, just, you know, I, I think uh, just an interesting aside there. Um, but, you know, I, I, th I think that kind of wraps. And then, you know, lastly, just, you know, very big addressable markets. It's almost its entire category entirely because, you know, you have these high, let's say you have a company with a very high quality management, you know, very high quality uh, business, you know, for, for the specific reasons of the competitive set it's in. And then, you know, that's great. But if it's in, if it's operating in a very tiny addressable market, it's not going to grow, you know, that quickly. Like it'll be the best at what it does, but the niche is going to be so small, you know, you're, you're not going to get kind of like, you know, huge eye popping returns here. The potential is just not going to be that great. I mean, that alone would still be a very solid investment, a safe investment, but uh, depending on the valuation, but like, you know, so, so having a very long wide runway to kind of compound intrinsic value is paramount. And then lastly, tying it all, you know, price and value, like you could have every, a company that fits all the 21 points of the frameworks. I mean, that's terrific, best company in the world. And I'm sure you can think of some right now, but like if it's trading at a really, really high multiple where you're not going to get a, like a meaningful yield on, on your purchase price, you know, as far as free cash flow for like many, many years, like, you know, five to 10 years. And then finally, from there, you can start compounding and like, you know, it's, it's, it could just be very dicey and there's a lot of downside risk, I think. So, you know, price and value, you know, everything comes, everything comes back to value at the end of the day as well is, is my firm belief. Right. A hundred percent. Right. I mean, despite whether you have a, as detailed a framework as you have, or, you know, you, you know, you subscribe to the, to the two point system or whatever, you know, at the end of the day, if you're not getting your price, you know, Hey, then uh, right. that's probably yeah. not something you're going to look at. But, yeah. And on the converse, you just, you want to find something like so obvious, right. Yeah. Where, where the price and value disparity is so obvious. You don't even need to precisely calculate, you know, value. You don't need a spreadsheet to tell you it's going to be, you know, 6% yield this year, 8% yield that year, this per share that you just want something so obvious that, you know, however you measure value in a fundamental, like, you know, way in, uh, in, in, in using the correct math that almost no matter what happens, or even if the price is a bit up or down, you should make, you know, a high return on your investment. So that, that's my closing thought there. 
No, for sure. All right. So I want to get my one last question on, you know, your investing framework and everything. And this, yeah. and you've, you've, you've talked about a few examples, not naming the companies, but in, in your, in your, uh, in your investment deck, you, you did give a couple of case studies and, you know, uh, this is actually one of the companies you mentioned on there is one that I've done a number of interviews with over the years. In fact, I featured them on the microcap graduation series here on planet microcap, the company EXP. So would love to hear, you know, and, and relatively briefly, you know, what, what would your thesis and how EXP demonstrates, you know, this investment framework that you just, you just laid out for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So EXP was a, that company is, they've had a good run. They've, they've done very well, especially last year. And, you know, that's a company that I, I'd seen them present at a lot of these small microcap conferences back in like, you know, 2016, 17, you know, some, you know, a long ways ago, and then really became interested in the company, um, you know, in later, in later 2018, it was, you know, I think it was trading around like $70 a share uh, pre-split even. And so, yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there was a few attractive things about it, right? Number one, straight off the bat, like they were growing at like hundred percent a year. They were growing monumentally quick. Uh, you know, two, they had a founder CEO named Glenn Sanford, and you know, he had built the company in the 2000s, I think late after the financial crisis around 2008, 2009, if I recall correctly. And, you know, and, and so, you know, right off the bat, those two things are okay. Like, you know, they're, they're growing very quickly. And then you're learning about the business model. And, and three, you know, he was doing something very different where he, he had a, you know, so a little background, EXP is a, uh, it's a virtual real estate brokerage, right? Today, the word virtual and online is, is everywhere and every company's virtual, but you know, even four years ago, three years ago, like that was still, a, it was still a foreign concept in most industries, meaning they are real estate brokerage and they've never had a branch, never had a single branch or an office. And their competitors have like hundreds, maybe like thousands of, you know, of branches like across the United States and, and other countries. So, you know, what, what was, what was interesting there too is, you know, they were growing very quickly. They had no branches. So they're, okay, this company is interesting. That alone right now is, is really interesting. Like, I want to learn more about this. Like, they, but they were losing money. They were growing really fast. So, you know, so you, you talk to the guy and you hear interviews on, on him and, you know, but you, you talk to him and, you know, and, and, and they're explaining the business model. And so, you know, kind of the really interesting things about EXP were um, the reason, the core reason why it was growing so fast was because, you know, one, couple of reasons. One, they didn't have any branches and that freed up so much money in operating costs that competitors like, you know, Realogy or, um, or, or, you know, sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm blanking right now, but you know, some of their other, their other, uh, their competitors, Remax, sorry. You know, then you have Sotheby's, you have Coldwell Banker, um, you know, you have all these different brands in the real estate space. Um, they have branches and offices and that's a huge expense freed up. So they were free to like allocate that money elsewhere in the process. So they allocated it in two ways. The first was they gave their, their agents a better deal. So the agents got to keep 80% of their split. They kept 20%. And, you know, at the time, like a lot of the, the office-based ones, like, you know, even as recently as a few years ago, were offering 60 to 70% split. They're offering 80 and it's only getting more competitive now. Um, but, you know, the other really interesting, uh, unique thing was they had a, a, you know, kind of a multi-level marketing structure, right? Multi-level marketing, it's a bad rap, but, you know, in, in certain ways, you know, it's, there's definitely big differences between like, you know, a bad multi-level marketer and like, and, and a fine one, a good one, right? Um, the bad ones are where, you know, end consumers get stuck and pay up front with a ton of product that they can't end up moving. That's pretty predatory in my opinion. But here it's, you know, it was multi-level in the sense that um, agents can make a lot of money. They had opportunities to make money, like 
if they referred another agent to the platform, to eXp, and then that agent completes a home transaction, then the agent referred them makes a, cut, a small percentage of, of the commission, right? And then it goes down seven levels. So he structured it. He, he took the idea from Keller Williams. He, he structured it such that, you know, like if you refer this agent and then this agent refers another agent and this agent refers 10 other agents and those 10 agents refer 100 agents, you make money off of like every single one of the people in that pyramid. And so that was a big reason why the growth was exploding because they were getting pretty good deal over there. It was good, right? Two also, you know, one great thing he did, which ended up, I think, I think really helping the stock skyrocket was he made sure that like almost every agent had the opportunity, every agent had the opportunity to own shares and most of them took advantage of it. Where like, you know, if you complete your first transaction, like you get some shares in the business. If, you know, you can opt to, you know, buy like, you know, up to like five or 5%, I think of, of your annual commissions and get paid in shares instead, things like that. And so a lot of these ended up being shareholders and they ended up, you know, referring people to the business. Like they had like an analyst day back in 2019. And, uh, you know, it's funny. This is really funny. It was a shareholder meeting and, you know, go in and we expect, oh, like, there's going to be like 10 people here. It's a small microcap company. Who knows about it. There's like a thousand people in the auditorium because it's all the agents, <laughs> they're shareholders <laughs> and they all showed up and, and they, they love this, you know, they love the founder and there's a huge kind of a cult like following within the company. And, you know, there was at the time at least, and um, I'm sure there still is. And so, you know, the end result was, you know, the company and the biggest knock obviously was that they weren't profitable and, and, you know, and also I think a very irrelevant, but big item that got picked up on short reports was that like the way that the agents communicated, not in person, was this virtual world called Verbella. And it's like, imagine, like, did you play The Sims on your computer, like growing up? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Other than, I guess maybe like cross between like Sims and like, you know, Nintendo 64 graphics kind of, but it's like you, you have your avatar and you walk around the world and it's like, it's 2021 and they're still like, it's like they're playing Nintendo 64. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of funny from that perspective, but some people are like, oh, look at this. Like it's a company with these horrible graphics, whatever, but like it, it worked, it was a working solution. Right. And, and it still is. And so um, the end result that happened was, they were, as they were growing, they had a clear path, you know, through discussions where they had a clear path where like they could get to profits and, um, you know, eventually over the longer term period, like, you know, this is a longer term holding that, uh, you know, and to clarify, like if, if you're looking at the situation, the investment thesis is predicated, was predicated on long-term success in my, in my view was that, you know, they're right now they were like had a negative, you know, single digit margin, but long-term they should have a much, much higher positive margin for this reason, this reason, and this reason, right. Once they hit scale. And that's what happened. It was definitely accelerated during COVID because in 2020, they, you know, home, home buying obviously has had, you know, quite a run. Um, everybody's moving away from the cities and they're, and, and they're moving to, to more suburban areas. They're, they're working wherever they want to. And so, you know, home transactions reach like all time highs by, you know, for the company, you know, by like major levels and uh, you know, prices of homes were increasing too. So that was a double whammy on the, on the upside. And then because all these shareholders, and this is something that I haven't like confirmed, you know, I never like asked them about, or, or you know, it was just my own thought because like the majority of the agents are shareholders and think about it. There's some of like, real estate agents are some of the most skilled on average salespeople like in the world, right? Somebody who's like a really good, like, you know, like real estate person, like they're also like, a, they sell all the time. 
So they own the stock. The stock is like going up because real estate's booming. And then, you know, and, and then like they're incentivized to recruit people still to the program. And then they're probably pitching the stock to like all their friends and people they know because the, the stock's going up. You know, it goes from like seven to 15. And then it went from like 15 to 20 to 30 to 40, 50. All of a sudden, this thing went from, you know, $70 a share to it. it, it I think it's absolute euphoria. It was at $150 a share. Right. Um, and then they, you know, they had a stock split and I think, I think it's, it's kind of calmed down now, but it's certainly been a good performer. But anyway, I mean, look, at the end of the day, like, you know, for, for the fundamental reasons, like, you know, it, it was it was growing quickly. They were doing something different. They had the competitive advantage of being the lowest cost operator in the business. They don't even have a headquarters. How can you compete, you know, on a cost basis with, with a company that doesn't even have a headquarters? It's the CEO's house in Washington, by the way. Um, you know, he owned him and his, his ex-wife together own like 60% of the business. Um, you know, and he, I think he's a billionaire now. And, uh, you know, but but look, he, from humble beginnings too, like he built this the right way, all organically, right? Like he, he gave stories like he, um, you know, he started this business without branches out of necessity because he couldn't afford them. He couldn't afford to start a brokerage firm with branches. So he, he, and then he figured out it worked. He used to ride buses like around the country, like giving pitches and seminars to why like, you know, real estate agents should leave and their team should join EXP. So it was, the stock is, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a, maybe up a thousand X from like the very, very, you know, early days, maybe more. It's, it's really incredible. Yeah. I remember, I think, I think I remember on, in the graduation series, he said like the main like inflection point was like, there was the one, there was one uh, real estate broker that like it, he knows if he got him to come on board, then that was it. Like he knew that he would get like a majority of them. So yeah, no, that was, I, I remember talking. Was that, was that Eugene Frederick? I don't remember exactly. Okay. Name, but I don't even think he said the name maybe on the, on, he maybe said it on, I can't remember, but like, who knows? It might've been him, but yeah, yeah it was like I that, that was like that one transformational hire that like completely changed the game. You know, for but also, company. by the way, like, you know, we see this all the time too, like reasons why companies sell off for the wrong reasons. They had an accounting restatement in like 16 or 17 and the stock, it, it did, it sold off quite a bit. But, you know, really when you're looking, you know, it's arguably a weakness with the company, but they, you know, I, it's not like they had it. I think it's pretty clear. One, the, the restatements were very minimal. Two, like it was clear, nothing nefarious was happening. Just some things were booked incorrectly. Right. Some things were booked as like, you know, as uh, as cost of sales instead of contrary revenues, like something very minor like that, if I recall correctly. And, and anyway, the stock sold off. So then, like, you know, there, there, there was a lot of kind of, um, I think, misunderstood reasons at the time why, why it was trading very cheaply. But that's it's very cool. I'm, I'm glad you, of course, you know the name. You're the king of the micro cap space. So stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and for full disclosure, I'm not a shareholder in EXP. John, yeah. are we are we still a shareholder in EXP? No, well, I'm 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 not a shareholder in EXP. No, gotcha. All right, so we're rounding the corner here in our interview today. So, you know, I, my favorite question to ask everybody is, you know, what would you say is an investing experience that really changed your career the most? That one thing that you're like, wow, this this is it. Investing experience that changed my career the most. I mean, I think the two, the two biggest steps for me were kind of, you know, I think when I, when I'd really joined, um, when Bob Rabadi was kind enough to offer me to, to work for him. I mean, I, that obviously that, that really changed like career wise, you know, the most, um, and, and having the opportunity to learn there and, you know, and, and kind of being extremely fortunate to be exposed to like my first exposure in the investment world to like these unbelievably kind people, um, where it was a total idea meritocracy, where if somebody who's 20 years old has 
you know, makes a good point that somebody who's 60 years old, you know, thinks it's right. They'll, they'll give him credit and there was no egos over there. Um, the other kind thing was, you know, the, um, the opportunity to take that, you know, a course at, at Columbia's uh, executive MBA program by extreme kindness of, of a professor. And, you know, he, um, he, he was very kind and, and, you know, that, that was, that was an unbelievable, um, experience, uh, being there. I'm kind of, kind of trying to think too, of like, maybe like a funny or, you know, cool, like, you know, one-off experience that, that really changed me. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm I, I mean, I, I think going back to maybe, maybe going back to just like, you know, being a junior in college. Right. And, you know, we're told, okay, well, tomorrow you're going to meet the CEO of Popeye's Louisiana kitchen. I'm like, okay, well, that, that's a big deal. <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, I'm barely qualified to, to probably be the janitor of Popeye's Louisiana kitchen. Like, you know, but I'm sure I'm, I'm happy to meet the CEO too. And then uh, and we were really stoked to go kind of to see if, if there was a restaurant nearby, which we ended up doing. And they brought us to like a local, um, you know, Popeye's over there. There was like a huge line and, and like they saw like, you know, the, the president of the company was there and they kind of let us cut the line. Then we got one of everything on the menu. And I, I was so sick, like <laughs> coming back home that night, but yeah, but, but I think just really kind of like sitting there and, and seeing all the, you know, the, the CEO, the CFO and, and the president and, and, you know, just being able to ask questions, like the first true management meeting I ever was a part of. I think that was, that was really remarkable. That really truly was like one of those, maybe the most powerful one-off moment in, that I can remember where I'm like, this, this is unbelievable. I'm just floored and captivated by this moment right now. And, and, it, and it really, you know, made a, it was a big deal in, in advancing, you know, my interest in, in pursuing this path. Very cool. All right. So, you know, I, I usually ask about advice that you would have for new investors, but I'd rather close it out on, on a question that I wanted to ask earlier, but you were on a roll with your background and, and we were getting into everything. So uh, one thing that really resonated, resonated with me is, you know, I'm also Jewish. You know, you mentioned that your, your grandparents, uh, you know, came over here from Poland, survived the Holocaust. You know, I, I'd love to hear some advice and, or just some life lessons that you learned from just being around them, being in their presence, being able to ask them questions, you know, love to hear some, some of what they had to convey. Yeah. I really appreciate you asking about that, Bobby. I, nothing to do with investing, but it's very personal to me and, and you know, uh, and my family. Um, you know, so, so they're no longer with us. Um, you know, when they were around, uh, you know, they're, it was very interesting, right? It, they, they never spoke about their experiences. I imagine so harrowing that they, they just never, you know, could, could bring themselves to talking about it. Uh, with my with my parents or you know my dad or my my uncles and aunts nobody um, but you know it, it was I think kind of you know takeaways there the biggest takeaway to me was my grandfather you know he lived until ninety years old and despite like everything they've been through right like you know when back when he was a kid he he had to go work um, during the time of the war and you know they they got rounded up into the in, into one of the ghettos in Warsaw. And you know, he, he used to have to go work and, and as a baker at like 12 years old to, to go provide for his family. And one day he comes back and, you know, things, you know, things were only escalating, like, you know, every, every week he comes back and his, his parents are gone. His sisters are gone. All, all of his family is gone and they're, and he never saw them again. And, you know, and, and, you know, for him to go through that and then his, how he survived and how, you know, he, the things he, the things I do know that he had to go through, notwithstanding any of that, you know, he was the kindest, you know, most, you know, giving, um, you know, person 
you, you'd ever met in your entire life. He, he didn't have a single, you know, he, I'm, he was never upset, never angry. He was, he was only, um, you know, he had only, you know, positive, um, kind things to do, you know, to say the way he, he brought about him. And, and I was always kind of puzzled growing up. I'm like, daddy, like I'm asking my dad, like, you know, how come grandpa, you know, after everything he went through, like, he's like, how, how can somebody carry themselves that way? Right. And, you know, my father would say, look, honestly, I wonder the same thing. I mean, if, if, if I ever went through something like that, he had every right to be angry at the world. He had every right to, to, you know, be very bitter for the rest of his life, but he chose to instead, you know, be unbelievably kind and have five children, you know, to kind of recreate like his family here. And, and now we have a wonderful, terrific family. And, you know, as far as like me too, um, you know, it's kind of give, it's given me this mindset that I think has really helped me persevere through life. Right. Um, I think about, you know, like I think about what they went through and the horrors that they went through and, and they found a way to survive and they found a way to get here. Um, and, you know, and, and help, you know, through two generations, give me a wonderful life. And, you know, whenever I have something in my life come up that is obviously unbelievably tiny by comparison. And, you know, and I think it's a challenge, you know, a lot of times I come back to this and I think, well, like, you know, what do I have to complain about? If they can make it through, you know, everything they went through, I'm, I'm, I'm going to find a way and I'm going to be okay. Like whatever I think is hard or annoying or difficult or challenging, um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to find a way because it pales in comparison and, and I'm going to be great. So, I mean, like it's, it's been, it's been a very profound impact and, um, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm unbelievably proud of it and yeah, you know, and, and, uh, and it's, it's been, um, the result has been a wonderful extended family. So we're, we're all here and, and we're all great. Thanks to them. Very cool. So I, I, I had to ask, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's stories from folks that have survived the Holocaust. They need to be heard as loud and as wide as possible. So, you know, any chance I can ask, you know, especially from folks that have, have made it through and, um, you know, so th thank you. Thank you for sharing. No, that. Robert, thank, really thank you. That means a lot that, that you, that you asked. So thank you too. No, of course, dude. All right. Well, you know, to close this out here today, I mean, uh, again, th thank you so much for spending the time and, and, and doing the interview with me and, and sharing, you know, your, your entire framework and how you got to where you are. You know, where can our audience go and find more information uh, about Sora as well as follow you on social media? Oh, sure. So anybody interested can visit my website, sorapeakcapital.com. And I'm on Twitter as well with the handle John Zuckerbar, J-O-N-C-U-K-I-E-R-W-A-R. And yeah, that, that, that's where you can find me. Very cool. Well, John, dude, next time you're out here, you're coming to a Shabbat dinner. And, uh, and, and, and uh, I, look forward to meeting, yeah, I look forward to meeting you in person at some point. Really do appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Me too. And it's wonderful to meet you too, Bobby. And I, I had a great time on the podcast. Thanks so much. You're the best. Thanks, bud. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.